and I had trained them the endonasal approach and I came back home and I started doing open and nobody was doing open in Cali. I mean, people thought I was crazy. Ladies and gentlemen around the world, welcome to this edition of the Rhinoplasty Podcast with me, Dr. Cameron McIntosh. So we are in the month of March, which is proudly brought to us by Carl Stortz uh, Equipment. Carl Stortz makes some of the best surgical instruments around the world and some other things as well. And if you're going to wait until the end of the podcast, I'm going to give you the email address of a person you can email to get a discount on Carl Stortz Instruments. So that's the, 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 the little bit about Carl Stortz, but I want to get into... The speaker tonight. So this is a lady I met more than five years ago, the first time when I was at a congress in America, and she gave a talk on how just by using sutures, you can change a person's rhinoplasty appearance, and that just blew me away. And um, she is so <laughs> dynamic. She's the first woman ever to deliver the Joseph Lecture at the European Society meeting. She publishes profusely. She is very involved with the International Federation of Facial Plastic Surgery Societies, and she is our silver medalist from last year's World Rhinoplasty <laughs> Day. So it's a great honor for me to have Roxana Kobo all the way from Colombia on the show today. Hi, Cameron. It's a real honor to be here today. I mean, uh, and I need to congratulate you because last year, which was, a, I think, a horrible year for everybody, uh, you put salt and pepper back into our lives uh, with all of the SORSA meetings. You know, this became uh, like something that all of us all over the world, world were looking forward to. So congratulations. I know we met, you know, yeah, four or five years ago. I don't know, you know, it was quite some time. And um, you've come a long way, so congratulations. It's great to see what you're doing in facial plastic surgery. No, thanks, man. And Roxana, nice. I'm, I'm quite excited for, for the show. There's a lot of stuff that I know we're going to talk about. Some of the stuff about facial plastic surgery, some of the some rhinoplasty information, and um, also about some of the Joseph Lecture things, etc. But before we climb into that, uh, now, how, like... I'm quite a busy guy, you know, I, I'm, I'm busy developing a hospital, running the sources, some of the sources stuff, doing the podcast, operating and stuff, little family, but you are next level. I mean, you've got two grown up daughters and you've made an immense mark on this male dominated rhinoplasty world. How do you do it? Uh, well, it, it has been a challenge. I've got two boys. Uh, my boys are 27 and 24. One is an electrical engineer. The other one is, uh, is uh, he studied finance and business, business and finance, and he does investment banking. Uh, they're both working now. Well, no, my older boy is doing an MBA right now. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's been quite a challenge, and I'm going to tell you why. Uh, women, even though women, every time more, you see more women, and medical programs around the world. And some countries, for example, Russia, the majority of people studying medicine are women, which is really interesting. But later on in their lives, it's really interesting to see that women start, either they do not spend a lot of time uh, in what they train for, and that basically has to do with being women and wanting to have a family and wanting to have kids and wanting to take care of their kids. But I came from a very particular background. Uh, I'm second uh, generation of immigrants, Lebanese 
Syrian Lebanese immigrants in Colombia. My, my parents both were first generation. And uh, my father was a surgeon. Uh, he, he was a very important person here in our community uh, because he was one of the persons that developed uh, the faculty, the medical faculty in the public university here, which is one of the best medical programs in the country. And he had trained in New York City and his father had died when he was very young, so he was brought up by a single mom. And uh, my mother, his, her mother died when she was one year old. And so they were both, they came together, were four kids. And one of the things that two boys and two girls that my father always taught us was that women had to be better than men. That was the first life lesson I learned, okay? and that we had to be better trained than men. And the reason for that being, remember, I'm Lebanese, very traditional. And I, I still have a very traditional household. I mean, women are supposed to stay home. And here I had a dad who was telling me, you have to be not only better prepared, you have to be better than all the men that surround you. And you have to have a way of making a living because if eventually you get married and have kids, you need to be able to take care of your kids. If your spouse dies, goes away, disappears or whatever. And, uh, and that always had a great impact on us in my sister and my soul. And my, my sister is very successful in what she does also. So, so I think that made a huge mark. And in spite of the fact that my mom was very conservative, and she is very conservative. She's 91 years old today. She was instrumental in my being able to do what I wanted to do with my life. And she was always there backing me up. You know, she was like, yeah, you know, and she would always tell me, well, you know, you need to, to be able to take care of your husband. You need to be able to do this. But don't worry, I'll help you with, you know, overseeing kids and everything. So I always worked. Always, always worked. And I knew I had it very clear that even if I had kids, I wanted to be a working mom. And I wanted to, my kids to grow up seeing me as a working mom, but not only as a normal working mom. I wanted them to see me as a, a successful working mom because that for me was very important. So I think that's like the big opening thing uh, that, that I wanna say, because I think that for children, you know, we can talk a lot, we can say a lot during, you know, to the times we spend together, but it is the example that really kids take away with them when they grow up. It's what they see constantly in their households. So there were values I always had. And then I'll move on to other things, but it was like, I was, when I studied medicine, I was single. When I did my residency in otolaryngology, I had just gotten married, but I knew I wanted to do a subspecialty and I knew I wanted to be facial plastic surgery. So we waited before we started having kids. So I went to the States, I did my subspecialty. My husband is an attorney. He did, uh, an, uh, he did a, a, a master, he got his master's degree in law and we were in New Orleans and I trained with Calvin Johnson. And I think that had a huge impact in what my life became afterwards because just watching Calvin operate was mind blowing. I mean, he was like amazing. And I had trained in the endonasal approach and I came back home 
and I started doing open. And nobody was doing open in Cali. I mean, people thought I was crazy. And uh, so when I, uh, when I got back home, we have kids. I had my first kid, but by then I was 33 years old. I was old to be having my first kid. And then my second kid, I had it when I was 37 years old, even older. So that was like changing paradigms. You know, I decided I could be an older mom. It didn't matter. And then the question was, okay, what are you going to do with the small kids? And, and my message for any of the women doctors listening to me is, of course, you can do it. And it doesn't mean you're, a, um, uh, you're not a good mom. And, and um, you need to have help. You need to have people around you who are supporting what you do. And you need to have a spouse, partner, whatever you want to call it that believes in what you're doing. Because if you marry somebody who's ultra conservative, who thinks that the place of the woman should be at home, uh, in the kitchen, taking care of the kids, well, it's a losing game. You need to have the, the person who understands what you're doing. And then, you know, I would always organize things. I was, for example, I was part of the PTA, the Parent Teacher Association in school. And I would go there, and I would sit there, and uh, I would go to the play days, and I would basically organize my schedule so that I could do that. And I would never, ever miss one of my kids' presentations unless I was traveling. And even then, I would always try and organize things so that I could try and be there for them. So that, for me, was really important. But, I mean, you've done it so well. I mean, I think we could just stop the podcast now. This is just a fantastic <laughs> message that you've given the ladies. Um, we actually, I'm quite excited, Roxana, to tell you that next month I'm doing a series on called The Leading Ladies in Rhinoplasty. Now, because you came in now as the medalist from World Rhinoplasty, I'm not, you're not on that month. But, I mean, yeah, it's going to be really good to understand because I so feel that, like, there are such amazing male surgeons around the world, but the, the ladies are kind of, they're there, but they're just not getting the exposure they should be getting. So I, this is fantastic. We need to do this. And, and, and before I go on, I want to tell you a story because, because when I started lecturing, and I love to lecture, I love to teach. My father was a teacher. I love to teach. And so, uh, and, and one of the reasons for that is two things. First, we need to transcend. I don't know if that's the word in English. We need to be, people usually tend to be very selfish and very jealous with what they teach their colleagues because somebody's going to take that idea away from you and somebody's going to start doing it and then you're not going to, no, wait a minute. I mean, the more you teach, the more you share, the more you let people know what you're doing, the more you become, I mean, the more people recognize what you're doing. And that's, you know, that has always been a mistaken concept. And so uh, I would always go to meetings when I was a resident and I would be sitting there to listen to, I don't know, one of the many famous people I have listened to over my uh, the years. And I would hear colleagues of mine say, you know, I've been doing that for 30 years. And I would look at them and say, why haven't you published it? Who knows you've done it for 30 years? And so one of my objectives in life is I need to publish. I need to write. English is not my first language. 
English is my second language. For me, it is a lot harder to sit down and write and publish. It takes a lot greater effort, but it's, it's like a mandate. You know, that is something every year I think that I need to publish at least one or two articles. Why? Because it keeps me active. Yeah, but Roxanne, it you makes just, me share my information. You, you also publish books, man. Tell us about some yeah. of the books that you've written. Well, in the middle of this whole thing, there was this, I started working in ethnic rhinoplasty. Why ethnic? Because our patients are ethnic. And when I was a resident, people, there was this term that I, I, I think I, I ended up making popular, which is mestizo, the mestizo nose. And so people would look at me and say, what is the mestizo nose? And the mestizo nose is a mixture of races. And today with globalization, with the trips, with everything, we end up, I mean, most of our patients are mixed. The pure races have basically disappeared from the planet, even though some people do not think that way. And so I would go to meetings and everything was, everybody had to be white, blonde, blue-eyed. And I was like thinking, but those are not the patients I get in my office. You know, I get the thick-skinned patients. I get the patients that come from mixed backgrounds. And then the next step was that People would speak of ethnic patients, and they would show this, these horrible pictures of ethnic people. And I would look at them, and I would say, wait a minute. That is so wrong. That is so racist. You know, that is so negative. You know, being ethnic does not mean you're ugly. And so I started using in my lectures pictures of beautiful ethnic models who were beauty queens. And I was like saying, you know, wait a minute, you're talking about ethnic, and here I'm showing these pictures, and these people show, I'm showing here are a lot prettier than most of the audience sitting down listening to this. And then when I was doing my, my fellowship in the States, uh, I was studying for the exam, and every time I would uh, fill in those things, uh, I would have to mark Hispanic, okay? Because I was coming from Latin, from Colombia. And I, and, and I would say, I'm not Hispanic. And the lady would tell me, yes, you are Hispanic. You have to say you're Hispanic. And I would tell them, that's not my race. I'm 100% Middle Eastern. I don't have any Latin blood in me. So if we're talking about pure races, I'm the one that has the pure race. You know what I mean? And that is so wrong. So that's why I started using the term ethnic. And so when you look at the term ethnic, ethnic means mixed. And some people feel that ethnic is overused, that it's, but it isn't, because most of the world is, is ethnic. We're full of multiple mixed ethnic groups that change constantly. So with that, I said, okay, you know, in one of the meetings, one of the publishers came up to me and they said, well, you know, you speak about ethnic, uh, rhinoplasty, why don't you send us a book proposal? So I sent the book proposal. And um, Tima looked at the proposal and they said, you know something, this is really interesting. We don't have anything published in this topic. So that was the book. The book came out as Ethnic Considerations in Facial Plastic Surgery. And what I did was I divided the book. And so we have 
facial rejuvenation, we have scars, we have minimally invasive techniques, for example, lasers and things like that. And then we obviously have a big chunk in rhinoplasty. And I was fortunate enough to have the big, big authors uh, participating in that book. So that for me was a great honor. But then the last part before we move on was the cover. And I'll show it in my, in, in my slides when I share them. The cover was, they sent me this cover, TMAS, and I have to say this, their covers are awful. And they sent me the first proposals and I said, no, no, wait a minute, this is not what I want. I want the face. And so they sent me this face and I said, no, 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 no. I want the face that shows that it's mixed, that it's global, that it's the whole world. So we were finally able to come with a face and this was really interesting because I would show the drawings to my kids and they would say, no, mom, you need to change the nose, you need to change the eyes, you need to put more hair in this whole thing. And my cover is this face, this woman's face, with all of the globe inside it, so that you know that we're talking about a real, you know, what ethnic has to do, and that ethnic has to do with mixed races, with what we find all over the planet. And that's what, and facial plastic surgery has become mixed. I mean, it's being done all over the planet. And so we need to think like that. We need to have open minds. So two, two comments. Firstly, just a question. How did people get hold of this book if they wanted to tell us this? Tiemann. Uh, they, get, they can also buy it in Amazon, but I know they can buy it in Tiemann. And it's not a very expensive book. It's like $200, $180, something like that. But it's an interesting book. No, it's a great book. So the second comment I, I want to make is, so when more or less when I was over there six, seven years ago meeting is also when I was busy doing a whole lot of research at the university because I'm in private now, but back then it was. And I was intrigued with how minimal so-called African-American noses research was done. And then on our continent of 1.2 billion people, there was no research done on rhinoplasty. And I ended up studying the low lateral crura of the low laterals and comparing them to the so-called African-American study and saying, hey, guys, but listen, African and African-American are very different. And then even within Africa, there's all these different races within, if you want to call it the black race. You know, so yeah, I tell you, it's, I think we're so short-sighted if we think – this is what a nose should look like. If you don't understand a person's culture and who they are, I exactly. think you shouldn't necessarily be operating on them. And it's a losing game because, I mean, depending on where the patient is coming from, you know, it's not your standard of beauty. It's not my standard of beauty. It's the patient's standard of beauty. And I'm going to tell you one other story. I mean, in school, I never thought my nose was beautiful. Why? Because when I was in school, it was like the twiggy nose. It was like small, upturned, all, you know, beautiful. You were supposed to be blonde, blue-eyed, and I was not blonde, blue-eyed. And I never thought my nose was pretty. And when I started ENT, I said, heck, my nose is really nice. And, and, and today, it's really funny. Patients come to my office all the time, and they tell me, I want my nose like yours. That's great, eh? Yeah. That's great. Yeah. So, um, yeah, this is so interesting. So what are some of the funnier things that have happened to you in your career as a facial plastic surgeon? Well, I was going to tell you a story because this was one thing that really impacted me. 
one of the first invitations I had was in Milano Masterclass with Pietro Palma. And I was really excited. You know, my kids were small. I, I think they were like seven and four or something. And so I, I got there two days earlier. My husband is Italian, so I travel with an Italian passport, which for me has been great because Colombia has been uh, has been a country that has been very stigmatized with narco and with the drugs and everything. And for a woman to travel alone, it was a headache. So I get to Italy with my passport. I'm really excited. And I get to the faculty dinner and it was the ENT. It was the rhinology part of the faculty dinner. And so I didn't know anybody. And so I'm sitting there and I'm sitting by this Turkish guy. I think he was Turk. And so we started talking and he said, well, and do you have kids? The same questions you're asking me. And I said, yes, I have a seven-year-old boy and a four-year-old boy. And the guy looks at me and he, and he said, and how old is your husband? And I said, well, my husband is two years older. And the guy said, well, you know something? Uh, and he made a joke and he said, well, for every uh, kid a woman has, she ages seven years. So in theory, ideally, your husband should be 14 years older, first comment, and everybody laughs. So I look at him, and I did not say anything. And then the second comment, he says, like, 20 minutes later, this was by dessert, I think. He says, and, the, you know, and I don't understand what you're doing here. And I was like, why? Well, you know, I'm invited for the rhinoplasty part. I was really proud. And the guy said, well... You know, I don't know how your husband takes it. You should be home taking care of your kids. And so <laughs> there is this silence, there is this silence in the table. And so I looked at him and I said, Well, you know something? I think I'm fortunate because my husband understands what I'm doing. And and but you know, inside I have this guilt trip, you know, my four-year-old is alone. Well, they had a very good nanny, and my mother was always there, uh, you know, helping me and everything. But it was like, so I finally, like, five minutes later, I said, what the hell? This guy is an asshole. So I didn't say anything. I was very educated. I simply stood up from my seat, and I went and I sat at the other side of this very long table. And I found a chair, and I said, can I sit here? And I just sat there, and there I had my coffee. And I said, I mean, come on. There is no way one has to put up with that. But it was like really shocking. I couldn't believe it. But then I have run into things like that constantly, you know, and that is a message again for women. You know, we have to try harder. We have to be better. Why? Because people do not believe us in the same way they believe men. And so that is why I always tell my female residents, you know, when you stand up in a podium You have to be better than everybody who has stood up before you. Why? Because you're a woman. And it is harder. It is harder to be a woman in facial plastic surgery. This is a male world. It still is a male world. So I've got to tell you this story, Roxana. So in my residency in South Africa, you write different types of exams. Like, And one of them is, a, is a quite an intense ICU exam. So you have to spend, I mean, I spent like a year studying for this thing and spend time. And now at the same time, we're having little kids. So my wife is fully into, she's in the trenches with her newborn babies. And I write this exam and I come home and I unpack and I'm like, it's such an unfair question. I didn't have an idea of what they were talking about. And she says, oh, 
it's actually quite easy. And for the next five minutes, she rattles off the answer. And I just thought to myself, that's ridiculous. Here I am trying to be out there studying and she knows all of this stuff. But yeah, sure. Okay, listen, why don't we just climb into some of the topics now? Because I know there's so much that you want to share about. I'm especially interested about the Joseph Lecture because it's the first time ever a woman gave a Joseph Lecture. And that was what, two years ago, two and a half years ago? Um, that was 2019, the last the last meeting where people met in person. In Amsterdam. In Amsterdam. And it was really, really exciting. Okay, I'm going to share some little things about the Joseph Lecture. Cool. So do you want to share your screen? Uh, let me just... And then, Roxana, I'll remind you that a lot of people aren't going to be able to watch what you... you so some of the stuff will be on YouTube, but a lot of them are on, on, on different podcasts. So when you do give speak about the slides, it'll be good to try and explain it to somebody who can't actually see the slide. So, Roxana, please um, share your screen with us and tell us about all the different things you're going to share with us later this evening. Okay. So here I'm going to share... Uh, the first part, which is a little bit like a summary of the Joseph Lecture. Can you see my screen, Cameron? That's beautiful, yes. Okay, this was my, my title slide. And I and uh, for me for me this was this was really it meant a lot. Uh, we haven't uh, it meant a lot because because of several things. I mean the Joseph Lecture had never been given by a woman. So it was the first time a woman was giving uh, the Joseph Lecture, and for me that meant tons of things. But then again, it was the first time the Joseph Lecture was ever given by a Latin American. So it was like a second prize. So I wanted to combine two things. I wanted to show people how one could use rhinoplasty to expand the growth of the specialty of facial plastic surgery with excellency. And so uh, I didn't know how to set up my talk, so I sent an email to my kids who don't live in, who are not living in Colombia, who are not living in Colombia then, and I asked them, you know, uh, what they thought. And my, my older son says, no, mom, what you have to do is, what makes you different from everybody else? And so I started building my lecture around this. What moves me to do things with my profession that nobody else was doing? And I guess that was the reason why they invited me to give the Joseph lecture. And so we already spoke about this. This is a picture of my family with my four kids, the typical conservative picture, you know, my mom, my dad. And this is when I graduated as a physician. But this is my timeline. I trained in Colombia. I did my specialty of ENT in Colombia and, and what's Interesting here was that ENT already had facial plastic surgery included within its training. And that's really important if we're going to be doing facial plastic surgery. Then I spent a year in New Orleans, Tulane with Calvin Johnson. And then I went back to start teaching at the Department of Otolaryngology. And what have I learned during my career? And this is really important. Education cannot be empirical. It is important to be formally trained one way or another for the benefit of our patients. And obviously, attending meetings, reading, studying, that's the best way of exchanging knowledge. But maybe the best learning tool we have is following our patients. Those are the ones that teach us the most, okay? And so 
Even though I consider myself a facial plastic surgeon, and this is important for you, Cameron, the specialty initially was not recognized or accepted in my country. So when I did my fellowship training, and remember, I'm married to an attorney, the first thing he said is, Roxana, you need to be able to have things that will back everything that you're going to be doing in facial plastic surgery. So I started my road, which has been a very lonely road, in trying to make facial plastic surgery an important and accepted specialty in our country. So I was president of our Facial Plastic Surgery Society in 1999. I was 39 years old then. I was the first woman president there. And then I later became uh, president of the National ENT Society, the second female president in that ENT Society. So if you look at this, these are male-dominated specialties. But again, what is the nose without a face? And here's the picture of my book. And look, this is teammate, but look at, so this is the face with all of the globe. And if you look at the patient's features, they're more combined and mixed looking features, okay? Roxanne, you know what, what I love about the, love this about this picture is the nasal tip is where I'm sitting right now, the tip of Southern Africa. Exactly. Exactly. Look at that tip. That tip is slightly bulbous. It's slightly round. The base is slightly wide. And that's what we, we face ourselves with on a daily basis. So it, all of this means that you need to think out of the box, okay? And it's not only rhinoplasty, it includes the whole face and neck. So how do we acquire knowledge in our field? And how can we grow as specialists and broaden our horizon? And it also means thinking out of the box and doing teamwork. That is really important. People tend, and surgeons tend to work alone, and we cannot be mistaken. If, you, if we really want to achieve big things, we need to do teamwork. And so in 1997, the International Federation of Facial Plastic Surgery Societies was set up, and it was based on the traditional of international friendship, which is what we see today all the time. And it had to do with the growth of facial plastic surgery around the world. And these two people were instrumental in this, Wayne Larrabee and Ted Cook. And so this was the initial board in 1997. And what were the objectives? It was basically organizing all of the facial plastic surgeries around the globe under one organization called the International Federation of Facial Plastic Surgery Societies. And you can read this better than me saying it. We had a magazine to be able to publish our work and the objective was also to have uh, an international congress every two years, which has been happening. So these are the country member societies. Today we have 14 societies. And if you take a look at this, the whole globe is represented here, which makes it beautiful. And these are the initial pictures. And I have been involved with the Federation until today. And this is, but look at me. I'm the only woman standing there, well, sitting here. You know, and 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 here I need to include uh, Vito Potella's picture. And again, I have been the only woman president of the International Federation. And why? Because, I mean, I think, and this shouldn't be a gender position. This has to be a position related to our achievements, to how much we push for the development of the specialty worldwide. And so 
it is clear that this specialty has grown thanks to the to the uh, exchange of knowledge of colleagues from around the world. But we also learn by watching others do surgery, and that's also important. And it is important to practice what we see before we use it on our patients. So how do we improve excellency and quality in facial plastic surgery around the world? And that was the big question. So again, that meant thinking out of the box, leaving our comfort zone and doing teamwork. So we set up the unified, and this, is, this was the first name, unified certification system in facial plastic surgery. And this picture is really means a lot to me because these are the two people I started working on this idea, Ted Cook and Gilbert Knowles Trinité. Ted was American Academy, Gilbert was president of the European Academy. And when we started with this idea, people felt like killing me. Nobody wanted to take an exam. Nobody wanted to make have a formal certification. But we all felt that it was the only way of moving forward. So we did a survey. And it was interesting to see then that none of the Facial Plastic Surgery Society members had an established certification system except USA and Canada. And everybody saw the benefits of establishing that system. So we set up the system in 2004. It, it was a compromise with all of the leaders that we would be using the same system that was established by the American Board of Facial Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery. And this was really important. We do not want to be below we wanted to be at the same level of the gold standard in facial plastic surgery, which was the American Board of Facial Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery. And in June 2005, a group of our people in Colombia, we sat the exam. And it was, hell was it scary, because we were the leaders. We were, the, I was the one that had set up the whole thing. And I didn't want to fail. You know, this was very stressful. You know, it was very scary. But we did it. But then we needed to move a step forward. And in 2012 in Rome, we created the International Board of Certification in Facial Plastic Surgery, the exam you took, the certification process you fulfilled. And that has been really interesting because we set up the International Board for Certification in Facial Plastic Surgery. And this hasn't really changed. I mean, the president is Peter Adamson. And it has been amazing to work with Peter because he has been instrumental in the development of this board. And then I'm the vice president. And what is our mission? To improve the quality of facial plastic surgery available to the public by measuring qualifications of the candidates following rigorous standards, okay? So these are the standards. And then I'm basically what I wanna maybe tell you is that they're the same standards as those defined by the American Board of Facial Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery. But what does that mean? And it, this is really interesting to see. Over, and this, these figures have improved. We have 150 international specialists have sacked the exam. Of these, 81% have completed all of the certification process. And it has made a lot of sense to set up our own board with collaboration with the American board. Now, was there time for family and children? Is it possible as a woman to achieve this? Of course it is. Balancing family and life 
with work is possible. And this is with my younger son graduation, it is possible. And we already spoke about this a little bit. And in the USA, 25% of the candidates performing fellowships in facial plastic surgery are women. And that number is growing. In Colombia, 30% of the women, of, of candidates are women. In Europe, 20% of these candidates are women. Okay. And people who have passed the exam, 18% of women have passed the exam. And this percentage is quickly growing. Okay, and how many women have completed the whole certification process? And in 2019, 31% of the uh, people who have completed the whole certification process are women. So this today is not a world of men exclusively. Okay, but, Roxana, what that shows me is that even though there were more people sitting exams, the girls are clearly cleverer than the boys when it comes to this exam. Well, I don't know if I want to say that, but look at this. In 2012, the only woman who, had, who was a diplomat was myself. But look at how quickly this is changing. And that is because women have, are, are finally realizing that they can do it. And that this is not, you know, uh, this shouldn't be fighting with being a mom or, or, or with having a normal family life. And look at this. This is really interesting. The Klaus Walter Award, 2018 and 2019, have been won by women. Okay? So this is quickly becoming a woman's specialty also. But then the question is leadership, because it's not only about taking the exam. Leadership roles. Okay? So we play leading roles in our homes, yeah, with children it's harder for women to work and oversee the house. And here I have to say, my mom has been instrumental. She lives in the same building I live. And I mean, she doesn't live with me, but she sends me the driver. She would overlook things. You know, when I needed help, she would give me help. You know, so you need people that can help you. And if that means hiring people that can be with you, of course. And men can also help. When it's the right husband partner, family structure, you name it, guilt. And this is really important, Cameron. It is hard to find the right balance between being a good mother and a successful professional. And this is where I think that being able to give the exam and the, the right example to our kids is really important because that takes the guilt away. We're not doing anything that's illegal. We're not doing anything that's wrong. We, we lack role models. So over the years, I have seen that I have become the role model for a lot of people. And I really hope I'm not, you know, doing the wrong thing. There is gender-based no, discrimination, of course. You had a question. No, um, Roxana, you're a huge role model to the girls out there. And not just to the <laughs> ladies. I think to, to so many guys. I mean, I, I have a great admiration for what you do. I think it's it's awesome. I, I mean, I remember how many times I'd read your articles when I had to write my article and cite your <laughs> stuff. Uh, uh, yeah. This is interesting. How do my children define me? <laughs> so I asked them. I sent them a chat. And so they said, okay, we admire your tenacity and drive. They say I'm really stubborn. My other son, you're never tired. And it's true. I can work 20 hours a day. You never give up, but at the same time, you worry about the people who surround you. 
And I think that's key. You have been able to keep a balance between your professional and personal life. And they think I'm the best doctor and the best mom in the world. So, you know, there is satisfaction in what we do. So how do we become leaders? So we need mentors. No is an as an answer for me is not an option. Don't give up. Always set the example. People are watching us. We need men, women. It doesn't matter who you are, what your gender is. We need to set an example. We need to try and be the best. We need to try and do teamwork because that way we grow. We become more important. It's much easier. And so at the end, I just basically spoke that we're all Jonathan Livingston Seagulls. Why? Because we do not want to do what everybody else does. We do not conform easily. And here we're talking about facial plastic surgeons. We're convinced that what we do is exceptional. We're passionate about facial plastic surgery. We are trying to reach a better world through perfection of knowledge to benefit our patients. But then the question is, can we really do all this alone? So my proposal to the people in Europe and I used this also when I was giving the TARDI lecture for the American Academy the year before, is that you need, we need to stop thinking as solitary seagulls. And we want to think as geese, like a flock of geese. And this is what I want you to take away from all of these things are, that I'm saying, is that when geese fly, they do it in a V-shape. And they share the leadership position. Why? Because if they fly as a team, they're 70% more efficient. Now, if one goose falls out of formation, they immediately notice it, and it is a lot harder to keep the pace. So they quickly need to get back into the flock to take advantage of being part of the group. When the lead goose gets tired, what happens? He rotates back in the wings, and another goose takes over. So if a goose gets sick or wounded and has to leave the group, others leave the formation and stay with him until he dies or is able to rejoin the group. That is teamwork. So a group that works together for the same objectives will reach them sooner in a more efficient manner and with less toll on the individual pe uh, people. And we need to remember that leadership can be shared. We can have different leaders working in different areas. We can combine abilities, qualifications, talents, resources to benefit the whole group. And groups should always try to remember to remain together in the good mo moments and in the rough ones, because it makes us stronger. And the respect for the other is fundamental when we're doing teamwork. So at the end, what I was telling everybody in Europe was that we need to start thinking like geese because we can soar higher and further. The specialty of facial plastic surgery can expand more. And in the end, we can benefit patients from all over the world. Yeah. Life will be a lot more simple. The flight of the years a lot nicer because, I mean, we're meeting people. We have friends. We can grow together. Yeah. And so basically... The end of my last slide was I was inviting people to work as a team for the growth of our special plastic surgery. Yeah. 
And so that was the Joseph lecture. And now I can maybe go very quickly to the, or you probably have questions. No, 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 we've got time. Take, take your time. So, Roxana, I mean, that's just fantastic. I mean, it's so um, inspiring to hear you and see. And, I mean, I, I'll, I'll beat the same drum. I think what's happened with Sorsa in South Africa has been exactly what you're saying here. So I have this question for you is how would you deal with criticism when you've got this person who's criticizing you? Um, I think my reaction, and sometimes I'm, as I'm getting older, I'm becoming hopefully a bit wiser about it. But instead of trying to lash out at them, trying to maybe understand and then actually realize that I don't need criticism, I'll, I'll, I'll take it from who it comes. But no, you can, how do you deal with criticism in your situation? Well, you know, that part, that part has not been easy. Uh, you know, you would be surprised. My biggest detractors in my country have been women and have been colleagues of mine and they have really made my life impossible and so for many years it was very frustrating i mean uh, i have lost a lot of friendships because of that because of trying to push and move forward and uh basically what i have found over the years and that's what i tell my kids is uh when you tr start achieving things, that makes people very jealous. And that is, that is a trait of the human race. You know, jealousy is something people are really, you know, you, you run into a lot of envious people around you all the time. And it's hard for people to accept that you can be successful. So what I tell my, my, my kids is, you don't have a lot of good friends in your life. You have few. But those friends need to be people, you need to surround yourself with people that approve of what you do, two, that are not scared of your success. Because I mean, I always tell my kids, if you have friends who are successful, you're also successful. I mean, it's the same philosophy as when you're meeting, you wanna be, you wanna know the famous people. But of course, but you wanna be surrounded by people who are successful now. What do you tell people who lash at you? Nothing. You're not doing anything against them. If you're acting in the proper fashion, if you're not stealing anything from anybody, if you're giving people the proper recognition for their work, if you're inviting them to work as a team, you're not doing anything uh, wrong. So basically what I tell them is you just simply move forward. Those who decide that do not want to speak to you, well, it's their loss, you know, and you're going to run into them. And, and, and then you're going to also run into people who come up to you and say, you know something, I like what you're doing, I want to work with you. And with those people, you work with them. And you work with them to construct things that in the end, our reason for being here, Cameron, is the benefit of our patients. You know, it's not ourselves, it's our patients. And we want our patients to receive the best possible care in facial plastic surgery. So we need to build things up. We're constantly building things up. And that for me has been like my mantra. You know, it's like we need to work always trying to do better things for our patients. Beautiful. Oh, that's great, eh? Thank you. Um, do you want to carry on with the, the next part of your lecture? Yeah. Well, and this I'll try and make go quickly. 
Rhinoplasty is the number one procedure worldwide. It's a humbling operation. So what have been my areas of work in rhinoplasty? Managing the ethnic patient, and, and earlier I spoke about this. In Colombia, it's mestizo rhinoplasty, Latino rhinoplasty, Hispanic, but I don't like the term Hispanic because Hispanic has to do, it's more, uh, you know, like a despective uh, term. So I don't like the term Hispanic. And then managing the thick skin and rhinoplasty because as more, as races become more mixed, the skin becomes thicker. And so my journey in rhinoplasty has also been thinking out of the box. And when I started working in Cali, it was really funny because I had a scrub nurse that would always, always tell me, you know, every time I scrub in with you, you're the weird person. And I was like, why? Because you're always doing techniques that nobody else does. It's very difficult to scrub in with you. <laughs> and so I said, well, you know, the interesting part of this is that at least you, you won't get bored and you, you will not fall asleep. You will see something new. And so we always have to think out of the box, okay? So the difference between race and ethnicity, this is important. Race has to do with groups, they're dynamic, but there are things that share culture, nationality, religion, art, whatever. And so within one same ethnic group, we can have people of different races. And races has to do with our genetic characteristics. So it has to do with the hair color, the color of the skin, the bony structure. So it has to do with phenotype, and they're completely different. Even though people commonly use them interchangeably, they're not interchangeable. So ethnic rhinoplasty, like it or not, is here to stay. And what has happened over the years? I trained in reductive rhinoplasty and the nasal approach. I went to the States and I came back doing open structure rhinoplasty. That was what Calvin Johnson did. And today I'm doing structural preservation approach in rhinoplasty. And it's a completely different philosophy. I reinforce all the support structures of the nose. I structure the skeleton, the, the pedestal, the lateral nasal sidewall, the nasal tip. And I try to preserve most, if not all, of my nasal structures. When I perform my rhinoplasty, there's very little of that I resect in patients' noses. Who are our patients? They're completely mixed. Look at this. I mean, you can have moderately thick skin, thin skin patients, big noses, smaller noses with thicker skin. So we're basically dealing with mixed race patients. And I think you in South Africa see this all the time. So the easy part for me over the years, because when I plan a surgery, is that I try and organize myself mentally. So what I do today is that I classify my ethnic patients based on anatomic findings. So noses can be lepturine, mesurine, or platyrine. This is the lepturine nose, the big nose, the nose that we find in European patients. This is the mesurine. Meso is middle. This is the mestizo nose. The nose that can have a little bit of a hump, but that has thicker skin, whose support is kind of flimsy. Look at this. this. There's no support in that nasal tip. And then we have the platyrrhine nose, which is basically the flat nose. And depending on that, we, we can have a mixture of things. So the consultation in rhinoplasty is key. 
and listening is the most important part of the consultation. Patients should always have the time to express and show us exactly what they want. It is not what we want, it is what they want in the end, and then it's our decision to decide if we're able to give our patients what they want, or if it is probably easier to just let them go find somebody else because we're not going to be able to have a patient who's happy with what we're going to be able to give them. So how do I plan surgery? Type of skin, type of underlying bony and cartilaginous framework, and camouflaging options. So what is my, and this is a picture of the place where I work. I work in Clinica in Banaco, and this was just bought over by a huge Spanish group that's Quiron. And uh, so this, I'm going to be talking a little bit about my approach to the thick skin patient while my disclosures. And we need to remember three things. The shape of the nose has to do with what? The skeleton. And that skeleton is bone, cartilage, the pedestal, which is that relationship of the caudal septum with the nasal tip structures. And all of this has this huge covering that we usually forget, which is the skin soft tissue envelope. And that covering is going to have the, an impact on how our results are going to look in the end. And we usually tend to forget it. Or most of the surgical techniques are oriented towards the osteocardiogenous skeleton, but they forget the nasal skin. And we cannot forget that. So what is our problem? Patients like this, thick skin patients. And we look at them and you look at them and you say, okay, what am I going to do with that skin? We need to deal with it. So what we're doing today is I do today an integrated management of the thick skin and rhinoplasty. And it has to do with medical management and surgical management. Why is our skin thick? Because obviously race, age, sex, acne, and acne is part of all you know the younger people. And then our particular characteristics of our skin soft tissue envelope, depending on the, our race, and we need to take that, keep that in mind when we're planning our surgery. And this is something I published. And, and again, this cover was also interested, interesting because I wanted a Picasso-looking cover. And, I, and so we wanted to have thick skin pictures, little pictures. So we kind of integrated that into a collage. And this was a whole edition dedicated to managing the thick skin in facial plastic surgery. And it's really important. We evaluate all of our patients. We look at their skin characteristics. And depending on this evaluation, we classify our patients into type 1, type 2, or type 3. Now, skin treatment is really important. Why? Because we want to target that huge blanket that covers the nose. So we want to clean, so we want to target the epidermis. And we also want to target the dermis. And so my skin programs have become a must in my rhinoplastic patients. Why? Because I want to reestablish normal skin conditions. I want to diminish the skin's inflammatory response. And I started, if I can, before surgery, and I continue it at least six months after uh, surgery. And basically, we use topical treatment, which is cleansing agents, scrubs, antioxidants. We try and work with changing patients' diets because we know today that that has an impact on acne. And in the last years, oral 
isotretinoin and has been a game changer in my management of patients with thick skin. And we were the first people to publish on this. We published this in 2016. When I spoke about this in a meeting, they almost killed me. Okay, I thought they were gonna sacrifice me. This was at a meeting in Chicago. I will never forget it. It was a rhinoplasty meeting in Chicago. And I was standing this in this panel and suddenly, you know, I'm talking about isotretinoin and there's this huge silence. And so I defended myself. And after I defended myself, Roland Daniel, who was sitting by me, said, you know something, I've been doing that for the past, I don't know how many years. And I said, well, why didn't you defend what I was saying? And he said, no, 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 I was letting you take the heat. So, but you know, this has been a big game changer. And it really, isotretinoin is beautiful in thick skin. And then in 2018, we published the integrated management. Why? Because we now know that if we combine ma managing the skin topically with oral isotretinoin, the results are even better and you see them faster. So we use oral isotretinoin in all of our type two and type three thick skin patients. And all of our patients should be monitored closely and in all those very complicated patients, I manage them with a dermatologist. And I'm conscious that in some countries, people cannot prescribe isotretinoin. In Colombia, I can do it. So I usually manage them. But what does isotretinoin do? It basically shrinks the oil glands, it reduces inflammation, and it helps prevent clogs. But one of the beauties of this is that the fibroadipose layer is thinned and it is thinned all over the place. So you don't have a thinning in one little area, you have it everywhere. So the skins look very nice. What happens after surgery? Acne usually gets a lot worse. So we need, you know, stress, irregular facial cleansing routines. Skins and faces of patients that do have rhinoplasty get very oily and shiny. So we need to look into that. And so we, in this article we published, and this is something that if people want to take a picture of this, they should take it. Low-dose skins we know today are just as effective as normal skins. We need to have normal hepatic function tests, obviously no pregnancy, but with the low-dose schemes, we have better tolerance and less side effects. So what are we doing today? 10 to 20 milligrams, two to three times a week. If I start this before surgery, I stop it one to two weeks before surgery, and then I restart it as soon as I take my tapes off, which is usually two weeks after surgery. Duration of treatment, four to six months, and surgery can be performed safely. There are no scarring issues. This is really important. So I want to ask you a question there. You said duration of treatment is four to six months. In that period of time, when does the rhinoplasty take place? Whenever I can do it. For example, if you come to my office and you tell me, Roxana, I want to have my rhinoplasty in one month, and I see that your skin is really oily and you have acne, I start you on the isotretinoin. A week before surgery, I stop it. I operate on you, and I keep that isotretinoin at least for four months after surgery. Now, if you come and tell me, I want my surgery next week, I operate on you and I start the isotretinoin 
as soon as I take my tapes off, and I keep that at least for four to six months. I have had patients on isotretinoin for a whole year, and it works beautifully. And they use low-dose schemes. They take, for example, two tablets a week, and it works very nicely. We just need to monitor them. We need to know that their liver is functioning properly. Okay. Okay, that's good. And then you also use topical at the same time. Yeah. And what is the topical? Basically scrubs if they, their skin is really oily. Topical antioxidants if they have really bad acne. Um, and then basically it's facial cleansing. It has to do with diet. So I take them off all of the trashy food. I mean, it basically means having a balanced diet. It really improves your skin. And it really helps you with treatment. And those noses, I mean, their swelling is really important because, I mean, you really need to deal with the swelling. I just finished a chapter on that. And it's like the swelling is really important in rhinoplasty. And isotretinoin helps us with that. So this, these are our limitations. And you tell me when I need to stop. But these are the limitations of thick skin noses. The flap is thicker. It's heavier. And obviously, everything that's underneath is going to be harder to see. Okay? So we want to build up the underlying skeleton. But many times, and I don't know if you have the same problem in South Africa, our patients do not necessarily want huge noses. They still want a, a small, little, pretty-looking nose, you know? Uh, and so we have two scenarios. I mean, we have this guy with a very big nose, very thick skin, and we have this lady with a tiny nose. So in her, I need to push out. And in him, I need to reduce the size, but then what do I do with the skin? I need to structure. So we have two scenarios. And then during the surgery, this is key. You need to avoid bleeding. Why? Because if the patient bleeds a lot, they swell more. So it's proper head positioning. You need to infiltrate the patient. I've been using tranexanic acid for years. And we do it intravenously, and this controls the bleeding. You need to have an anesthesiologist that understands that we need to have controlled hypertension. And then, obviously, proper surgical dissection. Yeah, you want to avoid using cautery unless you really need it. And at the end of surgery, you need to avoid that space formation. So these are my objectives. I mean, I have three scenarios. This one, you basically want to structure the underlying skeletal framework. And this is the big nose. Here is the small nose. And then the last but not least, we need to deal with the skin. So we're doing three different surgeries depending on what we have. So let's take a look at the nasal skeleton. I mean, you want to structure the L-strike. And I'm not going to stop here because, I mean, this is overemphasized. What happens with the big nose with thick skin? You want to lower the dorsum. How? Preservation with powered instruments, it doesn't matter. But if you're going to open that middle third of the nose, you need to structure it. And so how do I do that? Spreader grafts, spreader flaps, suturing techniques. Okay. And this is a picture of what it looks like if I'm going to open the middle third of the nose. I place a lot of spreader grafts. Today, I'm starting to use preservation techniques. 
So I'm trying not to open the middle third of the nose. And the reason for that in my hands is because I can use that cartilage in other places of my nasal tip. So it becomes important for me because I'm structuring also the lateral nasal sidewall. Then we cannot forget the pedestal. The pedestal, it is not uncommon to find retrusive caudal septums in patients of ethnic origin, especially Latino patients. It's way back as in here. And I have also published extensively on this. So what do I use today? An OSIC. What is an OSIC? An overlapping septal extension graft. Why do I overlap? Because it's easier. Because when because our cartilage in our ethnic patients is, is thin. It's flimsy. So it's very hard to set, to place a cartilage end-to-end. -end. You need to fix it somehow. So if you overlap it, it gives me more stability to my graft, okay? So I overlap it and I, def I structure it and I, de depending on what I need. So it's one, it can be rectangular, it can be triangular, whatever we need. It doesn't have to go all the way down to the nasal spine. It can be smaller, more like the ANSA type of uh, banner that Jose Carlos Neves speaks about. So basically, wherever I place this pedestal, this septal extension graph, that's going to define the position of my tip and the position of my nasal labial So we define what we want to do. And so this is what it can look like. And today I use a template and I learned this from Brian Wong. And basically I carve my cartilage depending on the type of template I have, have already tried on my patient. And this is, I'm basically after I place my septal extension graft, I use a timing group to fix my feet of the medial cura. And this is what it can look like. And many times to stabilize that overlapping, that OSEG, I use a bolster graft on the other side to basically help it stabilize in the midline. And this is very strong. This is very powerful. And look at how much I have increased the distance from this retrusive caudal septum to the point here. So this is where my new nasal tip is gonna be. Not here, it's gonna be here. So what am I doing here? I'm pushing out, I'm stretching out so that I can give a little bit more definition to that nasal tip. And this is, I'm gonna go quickly through this because we don't have time, but this is a thick skin patient. He was an Accutane and look at how good he looks afterwards. Now what happens with the flat nose? You need to augment. What do I use? I use, there's many techniques for this. I use finely diced cartilage with fibrin glue, okay? And there's a mold that has come out, uh, developed by uh, Jean Dujan, and you can either use the mold or you can use a template that I fashioned with a 3cc syringe. I basically cut it in half, I open it like a canoe, and I structure my graft there. And this is what it can look like at the end. And I usually, that dorsal portion of the graft I cover with anything I have on the table. It can be perichondrium or it can be temporalis fascia. And this is a long-term result in this patient. Here, she was like 17 years old. Here, she's 20-something. And look at how the beauty of this graft. This has stood really well over time. It does not reabsorb. It stands very well the test of time. And then, last but not least, I the nasal tip. So I usually use a structural and a preservation approach. 
What is preservation for my definition? I preserve, I do not take anything out. I try and be as conservative as possible. So what has changed in my hands? I always stabilize the uh, pedestal first. I do minimal resection of alar cartilages. I use uh, grafts rationally for structural purposes. And I define nasal tip structures using a lot of sutures. And if I need grafts, I use grafts. And then at the end, I use a lot of camouflaging. So grafts, and I'm not gonna stop here, you can do for the alar cartilages, you can use stripe grafts, batten grafts, I mean, alar ring grafts. And today I'm really working on the lateral nasal sidewall because these are the things that change the most over time. And here, we need to impact the external nasal valve because we need, we cannot forget that we're also otolaryngologists. And function is also important when, when we're performing rhinoplasty. And then the infratip lobby, we want to increase definition. So I use, I still use uh, the shield graph. And then something, sometimes I do, I do SMAS debulking. Why? Because sometimes we do everything and we have this huge, very thick blanket. So we need to thin it out. And basically, I use two approaches, either a subdermal approach or a subperichondral approach. And what are the rules of the game here? And you need to be careful. I don't use cautery. If we extend resection to the ailer groove, it can compromise the vascularity of the flap. So we need to be careful. And you do not want to dissect into the dermal layer. So you want to take it out as a complete graft. And I think that for the sake of time, I'm going to skip the videos, uh, camera. Yeah? No, that's fine. Do you want me to leave it? No, no, you can skip them. Yeah. And at the end, what do we want to do? We want to eliminate that space. Why? Because that space creates fibrosis and scarring. So there's two ways you can do it. Internally with sutures, externally applying pressure over the skin. So it, it prevents blood accumulation. It diminishes swelling. So here I defined where my super tip break is going to be. Then I pass my first suture and it's a loop suture right here in the area where, you know, Bitangi's ligament can be inserted, but right here, this is my super tip break. Then I look for my anterior septal angle, and I basically pass the suture, and it's usually an absorbable suture. It's vicral or PDS, and I just tie it. You don't want to over-tie it, but this is what I did in this patient. Look at how thick his skin was. I did a SMAS resection because it was overly thick, and then I placed the suture right here because I wanted to have a little bit more of definition in the super tip break. What is the post-surgical management? This is really key. Ice packs, head elevation, first 72 hours. Cast and tapes one week, additional tapes week two. I never leave tapes more than week two. Why? Because it really, really has a negative impact on the skin. And then I start my patient and skin treatments. So it's proper cleansing, it's lymphatic drainage, it's everything that I spoke about. And here, the last message is no evidence supports delaying skin surgery, dermabrasion, or peels. And it's not my publication. 
It's dermatology. So we know that we can safely use isoprotenum, okay? Now, I know people still use a lot of Kenalog. Every time I use it less, I only use it for very specific scar formations if I need to. But we need to remember we can start it as early as week one or two, and then we repeat it every four to six weeks. But if you're too aggressive, you can end up with skin atrophy. That's irreversible. Hypopigmentation, telangiectasia, and ulceration. So you don't want to be too aggressive. And I'm just going to go through one case presentation like this lady. Look at how thick her skin is. And I'm just going to run through the others, another person. And maybe I can skip to the end so that we can finish Cameron. But basically, what do we want to do here? And I'm just going to show you this last two slides and we're done. What we need to remember is that isotretinoin reduces inflammation, will diminish fixed subdermal and sebaceous gland production of the skin. Those changes, if you use it between four to six months, those are permanent. And the beauty of this is that the thinning out of the skin soft tissue envelope occurs in a symmetrical fashion. So what do I need, what do we need to remember? that the nose is part of the patient's face and identity. We do not want to change patient's identity unless they specifically want us to do it. Integrated skin management should be part of the rhinoplasty operation. And surgery should be aimed at building up, strengthening uh, the underlying skeletal structures, pushing out the skin soft tissue envelope. And we need to remember that in thick skin patients, Nasal tip definition can require thinning out the skin soft tissue envelope. So this was basically it. Yeah, Roxana, you have packed so much into an hour and 15 minutes. That is... I know. No, that's brilliant. I'm going to have to re-listen to this podcast and watch the video again. <laughs> wow. Thank you. I'm sorry. I'm sorry I took so long. No, no, it's, it's, there's no rush. This is the wonderful thing about this medium is you can actually sit and just talk. You're not rushed like into a seven-minute talk at a congress or something. So those listeners who've, who've hung in all this time listening to Roxana, I'm now going to give out the email address for the person you can email to get a discount on the Carl Stortz um, instrument. So listen carefully. So it's ethnic, you know, we in South Africa now. It's s.mazibugo at carlstorts.co.za. So I'm going to spell that for you. It's s.mazibugo at carlstorts, that is K-A-R-L-S-T-O-R-Z, dot C-O dot Z-A. So send an email and you might get a discount on your next set of beautiful rhinoplasty instruments. Sure, Roxana, I'm, I, I'm, I'm exhausted. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> Uh, I'm sorry. You see, I told you I was intense. No, but this is it. This is, you know, if you're not going to be intense, what are you going to do? So either do something or don't do it. And that's what I like about this. Eh? Um, I think there's so much, I mean, this, this, I feel like tomorrow's rhinoplasty, definitely I'm going to do that suture, but I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to have to start the skin treatment straight afterwards. So it's not too late to, and, and the good thing to hear that one of the things that stood out to my talk was how your, your scrub sister was saying that you're constantly doing new things. And I think this thinking out the box doing new things is really good to always be learning and I think that's what sets apart the really top teachers in the rhinoplasty world for me is they're not stuck yeah. in their ways they're wanting to continually innovate that is key that is absolutely key yeah.
we constantly need to change. We constantly need to evolve. Yeah. Well, Roxana, thanks, man. Thanks for telling us more about yourself, being vulnerable, encouraging the women around the world, telling us about the International Federation and your journey to there. And now this whole thing about the ethnic rhinoplasty and skin in, in thick skin rhinoplasty. Wow, I think we got so much out of this hour and 15 minutes. <laughs> so thank you so much and enjoy the rest of your Sunday afternoon back in Colombia. I'm going to be cooking, so it's going to be fun. <laughs> okay. Thank you for all the listeners and please make sure that you come back next week when we listen to the champion of the world, Jeff Marcus.